Good morning. Happy Labor Day. Tomorrow, as the ushers are coming to receive the offering, if you've come prepared to give, you can do that. If you are new here with us, we just want to invite you, let those baskets pass. Those are really for those of us who call this place home and know that God has called us to support the work of the gospel here and sharing it with others. And so we hope that this service, this time in God's word and in worshiping him together is a gift to you. So we're glad that you're with us. We're gonna be in Colossians chapter one, verses one through eight today. If you were with us last week, we started our series in the book of Colossians and did an overview of the book, just sort of identifying that the major theme of the book is this idea of Christ unrivaled, that Christ is meant to be unrivaled in our thoughts, he's meant to be unrivaled in our motivations, meant to be unrivaled uh, in, uh, over every worldly philosophy, over every physical power and authority. And so we press into that idea today as we look at the power of thankfulness, the power of thankfulness and how it causes us to see Christ as unrivaled and also to share with the world his unrivaled nature. So I wanna begin with this. Peg Wardenberg, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that overflows in hospitality to people who need a place to call home. Eileen Jeffrey, I am thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that has produced a vision for the labor of love that is passing the faith from one generation to the next. Carrie Krombach, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Jesus displayed in your peaceful, unwavering trust that you are in God's hand. Beth Underwood, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that compels you to pray unceasingly. Jordan Reed, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that has sustained you in love through great trial. Mark Copeland, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that makes you a faithful husband. Aaron Farrow, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that overflows in quiet strength and wisdom. Emily Chase, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that has illuminated your mind and touched your mouth to teach the truth of God. Paul Mank, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that overflows in acts of service that no one ever sees because you know that your father sees and you are well pleased that this is enough. Molly Lindquist, I am thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that has made a heart that is absolutely cavernous with capacity to love the outsider. Kevin Sunday, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that has placed in you a gentle spirit of meekness that draws others in. Emily Hansen, I'm thankful to God for your faith in Jesus that produces choices to trust him that are well fought for and beautifully made. Listen to Colossians chapter one, verses one through eight. Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Let's pray. So Father, come now. Send your spirit to teach and instruct us. Would you show us what a gospel work it is to be thankful? Would you rightly order our thankfulness now? And would you cause us to live lives for which others might be able to give thanks? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the section I just read in Colossians chapter one, verses one through eight, is a section that centers on thankfulness, and it's the opening of the book of Colossians where Paul just sort of launches in to give thanks. And I don't know if you know this or not, but of the 13 New Testament letters that Paul has written, nine of them begin this way. Nine of them begin with sections stating how thankful he is for the people to whom he is writing and for specific things that he is thankful for in their lives. And you know, you and I, I'd imagine if you've spent a little time reading your Bible, these are kind of those flyover sections that we read and we sort of say, wow, what a nice way to begin a letter, right? Grace and peace to you. I'm thankful for you. And then we move on to the other stuff, the theological content or what we perceive to be the more theological content to say, oh, okay, here's the the sort of meat of the letter. And that was just a way to begin the letter. But church, I want you to understand that right here at the outset, what Paul is doing is steeped so deeply in theology and it is so deeply important how he begins these letters. I don't know if you caught it, but he begins almost every one of his 13 New Testament letters, grace and peace to you. Do you know what a radical thing it is to say grace and peace to you? In other words, what he's saying is he begins his letters, grace, grace to you. In other words, what I'm about to say is meant to be an impartation, a reminder of the grace of God that has found you in Jesus Christ. I want you to be surrounded by and steeped in the grace of God, which reminds you that you are loved by God because of what Jesus has done. And he closes almost every single one of his New Testament letters with the phrase, grace be with you. In other words, it's as if he says, I want to impart a word of grace to you and then everything in the middle is that word of grace and then on the back side of it, as if to say, I'm kind of, it's like I'm leaving your house now. I'm saying goodbye. And so what am I gonna say as I say goodbye? I'm gonna say, grace be with you. We're gonna part ways now, but my parting word to you is that grace would rest upon you, that it would find you at every turn that everywhere you go, you would be steeped in it and know that you belong to God and he has poured his grace upon you. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, that should be deeply meaningful, that you would find these words, grace to you and then grace be with you. And then he follows grace with peace. In other words, what he's declaring is because that grace has found you, you have not not just peace with God, as profound as that is, you have the peace of God imparted to you. So Paul is saying grace to you, grace, grace. May it surround you. May it be your every breath and your every word be dictated by this thing that has found you in Jesus, grace. And then as a result of that grace, may his peace rest upon you. Have you ever felt the need for peace? Because you have it in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying when he opens the letter. Grace to you and peace to you. 
the peace of God and peace with God. And then he goes on now to, to begin this word of thanksgiving. And what my heart is today as I studied this this week and was preparing and thinking, my heart is just this, it's simply this, that you would understand how significant it is, what a, what a gospel work it is to give thanks, to be thankful is not just a sort of ordinary thing in life. To be thankful is a gospel work. It's a work of the gospel that makes us thankful and it's a work of the gospel to others to be thankful and to express thankfulness. And so I wanna look today at what Paul expresses thanks for. I wanna see if we can't answer two questions, right? The first is this. Paul seems to prioritize his thanksgiving and give thanks for certain things more than others. Now, we know that there are just myriad number of things that we could give thanks for in life. I hope we know that, right? I hope you know and find yourself practicing this idea of saying, man, I have so much to be thankful for to God. But Paul seems to give thanks for a few things above all others. And I want us to see that so that we might rightly order our thanksgiving. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. So the first question is, uh, what is it that we should be giving thanks for as we look at our fellow believers, as we look at people who share our faith and we give thanks for them, as Paul is doing here, what do we give thanks for? What should have first place in our thanksgiving, in our thankfulness. And then the second question is, is probably more convicting and a little bit harder to wrestle with, so just be forewarned. It's this, am I living a life for which other followers of Jesus could give thanks? Are there, is my life the type of life that someone might say, I am so glad that Trent is a fellow follower of Jesus with me? Is your life one? for which someone would say, I give thanks to God for your life. Don't miss that, by the way. Paul isn't just saying, thank you, Colossians, is he? He's saying, I give thanks when I pray to God that these things exist in you, which is a different type of thanksgiving because it's offered directly to God rather than just to the person themselves, right? So those are the two questions we're gonna attempt to answer. Now, here's what I want you to see. I said nine of his 13 letters begin with a section of thankfulness. Nine of Paul's 13 New Testament letters begin with a section of, on thankfulness. In seven of those nine, the very first thing he gives thanks for is the fact that the people he's writing to have faith in Jesus. So the first thing he gives thanks for is faith. In five of the nine letters, he gives thanks that they love all the saints. That they love all the saints. And I'll explain that phrase as we go forward. The only other thing that even comes close to those two things is three times out of those nine sections of thanksgiving, he gives thanks for the fact that they are also partakers of grace with him as he is a partaker of grace. You hear that in the book of Philippians, right? You can see how that's closely related to be a person of faith, right? He's saying you're a partaker of grace with me. So he kind of follows up his grace to you and peace to you with a thankfulness to God that they have been, have been partakers of grace. He does that three times. Anything else he mentions to give thanks for, it's once or it's twice. Nothing else even comes close to these two things. I thank God for your faith in Jesus Christ and I thank him that you love all the saints. So in the prioritization of his thanksgiving, he prioritizes those things. So listen to some of them. We already saw Colossians 1, verse three and four. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the hope 
and, uh, and sorry, and of the love that you have for all the saints. So you see the two things together there. Faith and love for the saints brought together. Don't miss, by the way, in these first eight verses, how many times he references the name of Christ Jesus. I don't know if you caught that. We are thankful for your faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God who is our Father. He just again and again and again repeats that it's in Christ that is the reason for all this thankfulness that I have. In Romans chapter one, verse eight, he says, first, first, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, there's something about their belief in Jesus that has been so radically life-altering and transformative in the environment in which they live that the entire known world has become aware that there is this group of people in Rome who are giving, who are of faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter one, verse 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, there they are again together, I do not cease to give thanks for you. 2 Thessalonians chapter one, verse three. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Do you see them there again together? 2 Timothy chapter one, verse three through five. I thank God whom I serve. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. So he comments that this faith is gotten, has gotten the attention of the whole world among the Romans. It is increasing and growing in abundance among the Thessalonians. And in Timothy, his fellow servant, he says he is reminded of how sincere his faith is. So the question that comes to us is why does Paul far and away uh, more than anything else express thankfulness for the faith of other believers? Why does he do that, right? Well, the first reason I think is because he is rightly astounded at the reality of what it means for someone to come to faith. If you were here three, four weeks ago, we talked about this idea that some of us who grew up in the church and came to faith at a young age sometimes downplay our testimonies as if they're really not all that impactful because we think, you know, I came to faith, I came to faith, me personally, when I was seven. Some of you came to faith when you were five or six, you know, eight, and you're thinking, I wasn't rescued from this sort of, you know, life that was off the rails, right? I was, I just sort of grew up in church and I heard the gospel and I responded to it. And my hope in leaving that day was that you sort of had, you know, your thinking reordered a little bit because what we discovered is that according to the Bible, there is no such thing as a boring testimony of someone because whether you came to faith in Jesus at five or 55, you were a dead soul that was raised to life. Now, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone watch someone get resurrected from the dead and say, huh, no big deal. But that's literally what took place. If you are in Christ Jesus, your dead soul was brought to life. It was resurrected as Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So were you. And so will you be one day in your body. That's amazing. And Paul understands that. And because he understands that, it's the very first thing that he gives thanks for when he says, I give thanks that you are of the faith because he recognizes that this is a miracle and he recognizes for this to occur in anyone's life is miraculous, right? He's the same Paul who writes in 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse three and four, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, what he knows is that this is no ordinary thing for someone who has been blinded by the devil to have their eyes opened so that they have seen the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. He knows how astounding that is, and he is amazed. The second thing he also knows when he gives thanks for the faith that now resides in the Colossians and in the Thessalonians and in the Romans, when he is doing that, he is recognizing the great cost that has come to these people for choosing to believe what they now believe about Jesus Christ. Now, you and I don't encounter that cost nearly as much as our brothers and sisters in the ancient Near East did around the Mediterranean. When they came to faith, there was a cost that they were paying for choosing to believe in Jesus, a deep cost. They had to cut ties from family often who rejected them and pushed them out. Their lives were in jeopardy for believing in this under an empire that required that you would worship the emperor and the emperor alone to declare that there is another God who is higher than the emperor and that he is no God at all, this emperor of Rome, is to take your life in your own hands. And Paul knows it. And so when he gives thanks for faith, he is saying, I know the cost of this thing for you. Now, you and I don't live under emperor rule. We don't live in a world that says we will put you to death, at least not in our society. We will put you to death for your proclaimed faith in Jesus. But I do want you to understand that the cost of following Jesus in our society is increasing and will only continue to increase. I'm not a doom and gloom guy. I'm not a big naysayer. I'm way more optimistic than pessimistic, but you need to understand that the trajectory of our society is such that the day is coming where as a follower of Jesus, if you are going to live faithfully under the conviction of what is true and right, you will experience rejection and it will cost you. There will be a cost to following Jesus in a way that there has not been, quite frankly, for the last 100 years of our existence as a country. It is growing you will be, in order to stand on biblical, faithful theology and principles, it will require you probably to forego certain industries which you will not be able to work in. There's a very good chance you will have to take a financial loss in order to faithfully follow Jesus in your businesses. And you will certainly experience being on the outside of the societal norms and orthodoxy in any number of areas of, of thought where we just cannot align. That cost will reveal what is in our hearts towards Jesus. And the cost is one you and I will have to pay. I want you to be prepared. Paul knows that, and so he says, I give thanks to God that the blinders have come off. I give thanks to God that you are willing to walk in the cost of what it means to have faith in Jesus. That sounds a little different than just a little flyover, hey, I'm thankful for you, doesn't it? Now the next thing, right, is that he knows when he gives thanks for faith, and this is, this is maybe the, mo the most important part of this, what he knows is that when he gives thanks for their faithfulness, it's not that it's bad to give thanks for, um, sorry, for their faith in Jesus. What he knows is it's not bad to give thanks for all these other things, 
but he understands that all of those things are in them because of their faith in Jesus. And so he's going to first give thanks for the first thing. Right? I was convicted this week, and I was trying to model for you in the things that I was giving thanks for at the beginning of this sermon, what it looks like to say, I recognize that every one of these things that I'm thankful for in you is something that is in you because God has won you to faith in Jesus Christ. And because that faith exists in you, so does faithfulness, so does wisdom, so does steadfastness. All those things are worth giving thanks for. Yes, church? All of them stem from the fact that you believe in Jesus. Every single one. And I was convicted that I need to draw a much straighter line between the things I give thanks for in my people, in the saints of God, and the fact that they have faith in Jesus. Because do you know what that does? What it does is it crushes our own self-righteousness and our sense of self-assurance and our pride, which begins to believe that somehow I have been steadfast. Somehow I have been wise. Somehow I have been, you name it, fill in the blank with whatever it is that someone says, I'm so thankful that you are such a servant. I'm so thankful that you are so wise. Whatever they might thank you for, when, we, when Paul says, I'm thankful for your faith, what he's saying is, remember that everything that's good in you, that's Jesus. He's the one. He is the unrivaled one. And he will not be rivaled by you and your affections for yourself. He will take those affections, thank you very much, and he will be first in them because he is most, because he is best. He is unrivaled. And so when we do that, what we do is we participate with one another in helping each other. When we draw this straight line from faith to the things in one another that we are thankful for, What we are doing is we're helping one another draw a straight line between those things that helps put away pride and helps usher in humility. And that's at least part of what Paul is getting at. It's why he's so dead set on first giving thanks for the faith that he sees in them that God has brought about. Now, the second question, like I said, is harder because we have to ask ourselves the question, am I demonstrating a faith that would make others thankful Am I demonstrating a faith in Christ Jesus that would make others thankful? Now to understand or to assess the answer to that question, I think it's helpful to break faith into its two component parts. And essentially, whenever you see Paul talk about faith in the New Testament, you'll find that he's really usually talking about it as one of two things, and they go together. It's conviction and it's trust. Conviction and trust are the two elements that Paul really paints when he talks about faith. So when you see him talking about the faith that he's thankful for in the Romans, in the Colossians, in the Thessalonians, he is essentially saying, you have been convicted that certain things are true about God and therefore you must live in the world in a certain way. In other words, those who believe that God is who he has revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ are convicted of that reality, is deeply seated in them, and then because they're convicted of that, they recognize that there are ways in the world that they must live, and there are ways that they can never live because of that conviction. That they are, I thought, I think about it this way. I, I love the term a convictional life. I want a convictional life. One that is deeply rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and who he is and therefore then wants to live out of the conviction that Jesus is the son of God, that he has purchased my redemption through the cross, that he has risen from the dead and that I will one day live eternally with him. I want 
every single decision I make in life to be dictated to me by those realities, by that conviction. And so that means that when I enter into my workplace, there are certain things I can never do. And there are certain things I must do. And when I raise my kids, there are certain things that I can never do. And there are other things that I must do. When I think about my marriage and the way I love my wife, there are certain things that I can never do. A convictional life is one that never says, you know, I'll just put these convictions aside for a second and then I'll do this thing and then I'll put them back on. Those are not convictions. Those are convenient ideas. Convictions are so buried in the heart of the convicted that they cannot be removed because they are buried in the depth of the heart. And what Paul is saying is, I'm so thankful for your faith. He is saying, I'm so thankful for the depth of the conviction that you have about who God is and the way that is displayed then in a convictional life that you live. I want a convictional life, do you? Second part is trust, and this is a little bit simpler, right? A little easier to see. But essentially what he's saying is when you are convicted of these true things about God, then the second component of faith is that you trust him. It's just that, you just trust him. Whatever comes, whatever he brings, like Job, right? The Lord gives, and the Lord what, church? Takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, come what may, I will trust him. I will trust him. The heart that is deeply convicted, it's not as if it never struggles with doubt. It's not as if it it never wrestles with what is true. But there is something in the convicted heart that just knows that even if I wanted to take this off, I couldn't. Because I have seen, I've had the veil removed and I've seen the person of Christ revealing the nature of the Father and once seen, I cannot unsee it. And so with Martin Luther in the Reformation, I say, here I stand, I can do no other. This touches deeply on a, a, a precious piece of theology we call the perseverance of the saints, which is to say, All who are truly in Christ Jesus will persevere to the end in Christ Jesus. This is the teaching of the the word of God. That we will persevere in him because to have faith is to be a convicted person. To live a convictional life. And then that conviction gets displayed, church, in trust. In the day-to-day hard work of just saying, I don't see how this is gonna work out but I will choose to do what is right and I will trust God. He will be enough. And as that cost increases in following Jesus, do you know that the convictions must be more deeply rooted and the trust must be more fully displayed? It must occur. The second thing that we see that Paul gives thanks for, if that's the two sides of am I demonstrating a faith for which others could give thanks. The, the answer to that question is really found in just asking, well, am I living a life of conviction? Am I living a life of trust? And just ask yourself those, right? I can't answer it for you, you before the Lord, 
though, can answer it. Now, the second thing, love for the saints is the second thing that he gives thanks for. And we saw, again, Colossians chapter one, verse three and four. He says, when we pray for you, we, we give thanks when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And we saw it in Ephesians chapter one and we saw it in 2 Thessalonians chapter one as well. So again, I won't, I won't read all those again, but I want you to understand that he goes out of his way to say that the second thing I am thankful for in you, Colossians, Thessalonians, Ephesians, the second thing is how much you love your fellow believers. How much you love your fellow believers. Now, church, I want you to understand that what what Paul is telling us here is that there should be a special place of affection in our hearts for one another. For those who share faith, there should be a deeper love even than the love that we experience and express for those who are outside the faith. Now, I don't mean to say that those are in opposition to one another. Clearly, Jesus, Matthew 5, right? Love your enemies. Love them. Anybody can love their friends. Love your enemies. Right? He clearly teaches that. But then he follows it. John chapter 13, right? When he says, they'll know you're my disciples by what? By the love that you have for one another. There is a unique type of love that is meant to exist between people who are bound together by Jesus Christ. And I think the way he gets at that here is through two key words in these phrases that he uses the almost the exact same phrase in every one of the five uh, expressions of thankfulness for their love for the saints. And he's, it's this phrase. I'm thankful to God for your love for all, that's the first key word, the saints. And I'm gonna take them in backwards order, right? The first thing that he points out is that it's your love for the saints. Now, some of you, when you hear that word, you may think about the idea sort of that's uh, like in the Catholic church where certain people achieve sainthood, right? It's something, it's a, it's a title that's given. That's not what he's talking about here. To be a saint in New Testament terms, it's this Greek word, uh, hagias, and it means holy one. That's literally what it means, that, that to be a saint is to be a holy one. And what Paul is talking about there is that this is true of everyone who has come to faith in Jesus because his righteousness has been planted inside of you if you are his, which means that when Jesus looks at you and when the Father sets his gaze upon you, he sees one who has been made holy by the blood of his son. That's who you are Your deepest reality is not a sinner trying to get holiness in from the outside somehow as if you could figure out a way to do enough to get that holiness kind of down deep and try to push it down, push it down, push it down until it's at the core of you. No, the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come in like a surgical instrument and he has pierced your heart and he has placed at the deepest part of you holiness and righteousness. His holiness, not not some earned righteousness. It's his, which means he has the freedom to give it. And it's his, meaning it is perfect righteousness. And he takes that surgical tool of the cross and he cuts away at our hearts and he plants that righteousness in there. And he says, now you are a holy one. You are a saint. And what you need to do now is let what is buried in the deepest part of you now begin to grow out from the inside all the way out to the tips of your toes and the tips of your fingers. Be who you are. That's how Paul approaches every single one of the sin issues of the churches in the New Testament. He doesn't say, you gotta figure out how to become a holy person. He says, you have been made a saint. Now live that out. 
The problem is not that you don't have what you need. The problem is that you're not living according to what you've been given. Do you see the difference, church? It's a tremendous difference. And so, as Paul talks about that here, he says, you have a love for all the saints. What, by using that term, he's doing something really crucial and really critical and maybe even a bit sneaky as he's saying, essentially, what I want you to understand is that when you love another believer, what you are doing is you're reminding them who they are in Christ Jesus. You are reminding them that they are a saint. That's their identity. That's their destiny. That is who they are. And I'm thankful to God for your love for all the saints because what it does is it counteracts what the world tells us all the time about ourselves. Do you think you get a lot of of true messages from the world when you leave this place, do you get a lot of true messages about who you are? No. To the world of business, you are either a cog in the wheel or you are someone who needs to buy something to make their business go and so they'll tell you what you need in order to be a successful, happy, beautiful, wonderful, lovely person. And every time we tell each other Man, I love you, and I, I'm thankful to God that you love one another. What we're doing is we're reminding ourselves who we are and whose we are. There's plenty of people, I don't, I don't find in the world every day a lot of people saying, I love you. So we have to do it for each other. You follow? It's so crucial. The second word, clear, this, so there, this is super simple, right, is the word All. All, I am thankful for your love for all the saints. In other words, here's these Colossians. They've never met Paul. They live in a different place. And what he's saying is, because you have come to faith in Jesus, you love a group of people that you've never met and who the world tells you should be your enemy. So when you love them, in spite of the fact that the world thinks that this person is someone that just by natural causes should be someone you hate, when you love that person, because you are bound together in Jesus Christ, what you're doing is pointing to the reality that it's the gospel alone that can break down the dividing wall of hostility between any two groups of people, between Jew and Gentile, between black and white, you name it, the gospel is meant to break down the dividing wall of hostility. That's Ephesians chapter two. And because the gospel does that, when you love one another, when you love all the saints, not some of the saints, when you love all the saints, you are testifying to the power of the gospel. Now, that's why Paul is expressing thanks. The second question, again, the harder question, the more convicting question is this. Am I living a life of love for all the saints in such a way that someone else could give thanks for that in me? That's a, that's a tougher question, isn't it, church? Some of us are holding on to unforgiveness. Some of us have been wounded by someone in the church and we just, we won't let it go. Some of us have wounded someone and we won't go and seek forgiveness. Let's just return to those two categories again now and think about that again. If I want to know if I'm living a life of love for all the saints, then I have to ask those two, these two questions. Is the way I'm loving this person reminding them of their destiny in Christ Jesus, of who they are? And secondly, do I love all the saints? I'm not saying there's not room for 
theological difference, right? There's not room for deeply held convictions, right? But, but we can't just say, you know, I love my church, right? And by the way, pastors are kind of most guilty of this because we're pretty theologically convicted that we, our denomination represents the truth, the right perception. So the question that's convicted me all week is, do I love the saints, all of them, who are parts of other churches and other denominations, and we disagree about certain theological issues, but do I love them? I won't tell you what answer I gave myself. (laughs) Do you love all the saints and testify to the power of the gospel in breaking down the dividing wall of hostility? Do you love them all around the globe at every place? across every category? And is your love so deeply committed and sacrificial and pure and faithful? Is your love so increasing in measure that when you love someone who's a fellow believer, they are more fully reminded of who they are, a holy one of God? Is that what your love is like? I pray you'll ask yourself that question before the Lord and let him speak to you on that because that's what he's calling us to. This is not a flyover expression of, hey, I'm thankful for you guys. All right, now on to more important things. This is how he begins because this is what he wants us to know. Thankfulness is a gospel work. It's a gospel work. It's fitting that we talk about thankfulness today because we come to the table now. The thing for which we give most thanks, the sacrifice of Jesus. Servers, if you'd come, if you're new with us, let me explain that we take the Lord's Supper when we gather on a regular basis and we do that to remind ourselves because Christ has commanded us to remind ourselves of his sacrifice on our behalf. As we said, that what is good in us is Christ and Christ is in us because he has sacrificed his life on the cross. And so we remember that cross when we come to this table, the bread we hold in our hands, the cup we hold in our hands, remind us of his body and his blood. Let me say this, if you are a follower of Jesus, whether you call this church home or not, you are welcome to this table. We are glad for you to partake uh, and be one of that category of all the saints glad to partake with you. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not yet come to the conviction that Jesus is God's son and that through his death and resurrection alone, you can have life in him through faith in him, we just invite you to let these elements pass. You can make that decision right now. You could, you could say, Jesus, I'm yours right now. I believe and come to this table. But if you don't find yourself in that place, we wouldn't want you to declare with your actions something you do not yet believe in your heart and with your mind. And so we'll invite you to let those elements pass and use this as a time to consider and reflect upon what God is doing because here's what we believe. God is drawing you to himself because he is good to do so. And so we invite you to let this be a time where you consider that. Church, as we partake now, we partake as those who are ready to receive from God, to put ourselves in a posture, to say, Lord, Whatever you want to speak to me through your spirit now, whether it's a word of conviction or challenge or correction, anything you want to bring, we do it with a sober mind 
and a ready heart to receive from God now in this time of reflection. Let me remind you as well before I pray that you'll receive two cups stacked together and the lower cup will be the bread and in the upper cup will be the juice. And so we'll partake of those together once we've all received. So let me pray and then us servers will have you come. Lord, we thank you for this table. Thank you for what it represents. We thank you that as we partake of it, it is a reminder that we are a fickle people, prone for our hearts to wonder. And so you draw us back again and again with reminders of the gospel. And we need them and we thank you for them. We pray today, now, Holy Spirit, be with us in this time and in this place. Thank you, you've promised that you would be. And so now we listen to you. As we hold the elements, we say to you, we, we want to listen to you, wait upon you. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.